On um, Friday night, just gone, I saw one of the most destructive films in living memory to such a degree that at the end of it I felt some degree of motion sickness. It was the newborn film. And it got me thinking about the amount of destruction that there is in the predictable disaster films. There are many, whether it's Towering Inferno, uh, whether it be something like the end of the latest born film, whether it be Gladiator, uh, whether it be the Die Hard 20 films, whatever it was, there's something very, very predictable about the disaster film. There's normally a tower involved. There's a, a chap who is bent on destruction, and then there's a hero who normally wears a white vest, if he's called Bruce Willis, and it gets increasingly stained throughout the film. There's bulging muscles of Jason Statham. And then there's uh, guns and hand grenades and smashed cars and everything. It's just chaos. And then the hero just seems to last a, just enough time, even without shoes on, trampling on broken glass until the goodies come and there's police sirens wearing, and all is well. But because it's the world of CGI these days and green screen, no longer is it just a, t a tower is no longer good enough to be defended and broken into and hijacked and stuff. Now it's a whole city. So that even in the year that's passed, there is the great motion picture called London Has Fallen. And in London Has Fallen, it's not just a tower, it's the whole city that is destroyed with a few clicks of a mouse and a green screen. So Westminster Abbey is no more. The Tower of London has been destroyed. That sympathy was from a Welshman, you can tell. There's... Um, <laughs> Bridges are burned all through a few clicks of a mouse. There's destruction on a, just on a huge scale. And it's all resolved in an hour and a half and all is well. Whether it's London or Gotham City that's destroyed in the name of a, a film, when we turn to Nehemiah, we cannot have that imagery in our mind because this is real. It's 587 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar and his troops have just entered into the streets of Jerusalem. Babylon are the superpower of the day. And thousands upon thousands of troops have streamed through the gates of Jerusalem, wanting to destroy it, not wanting to leave one brick on another. The temple is destroyed. This great symbol of God's presence and dwelling is destroyed. Gold is removed. Precious articles are taken away. Bricks are smashed to pieces. Wood is burned. It's the Babylonian uh, heart to take away the leaders of a nation. So people like Daniel are carried off to Babylon. Thinking that if you take away the leaders, then a nation can't stand. But then, as we turn to the pages of Nehemiah, we're a hundred years later already. For Babylon, replace Persia. They're the new superpower. And it's their conviction that if you want to take over a city like Jerusalem, if you want to uh, control it, then you don't want to lose your tax base. And so the wise thing to do is not just to keep all the leaders like Daniel and co. in Babylon. You want to send the leaders back. Because if you send leaders back to a city or to a faraway land that you've conquered, well, they can work really hard. They can be taxed heavily and you can reap all the rewards. And so if you look in the preceding book of the book of Ezra, where the temple was rebuilt, and 
Ezra 1 to 6, there's a bunch of Jews returning to Jerusalem, seeking to build up the temple and rebuild the walls in part. And then in chapters 10 through 12 of the book of Ezra, there's a second wave. So these two waves of Jewish people, God's people returning to God's city to seek to rebuild all the damage that Nebuchadnezzar and his troops have done. And so as we get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, a hundred years have passed since those troops entered through the gates. Persia is the superpower. But then we read of a new character. His name is Nehemiah. He's apparently the shortest man in the whole Bible. That joke will not be repeated, please, in my absence. But he's a great leader as well. And if we read the first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah, we get a crash course on biblical, God-centered, spirit-empowered leadership. Books have been written on it. Pages have been construed on it. And as you get through chapters 8 and to the end, you've got global reform. You've got God's people teaching once again in family units what it means to be Christians. But in the beginning... Not one stone is upon another. But we're introduced to Nehemiah in chapter 1 of the book. He's the son of Hakaliah, verse 11. He's the cupbearer to the king. More about that later. But this man, Nehemiah, as I've looked at the book just in the week that's passed, three words that will be developed and repeated in the weeks to come. He's a man of passion, Nehemiah. He's a man of prayer. And he's a man of great courage. Passion, prayer, courage. Number one, a man of passion. Look at verse one. It tells us where we are. The book begins in a place called Susa. Susa, the capital. Nehemiah's living in a, in a citadel. It's the uh, citadel of Persian kings. It's a winter residence. A bit like Hampton Court, if you like, but in modern day Iran. He's 250 miles away from Babylon. He's 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And God's promises are looking in tatters. He uh, was the cupbearer to the king, verse 11. If there's one thing that you would fear as a king, it would be poisoning. There are many ways that you could kill a king. But a really easy and a subtle way would be to poison his wine. Nehemiah is not a kind of a Jews and Worcester servant. He's not a wine bibber. He wouldn't have had a black and white tux on. He was more like a bodyguard. More like an SAS character whose job it was to um, back up and support and to protect the king. He would have been in his presence and in his court every day. He would be one of his most trusted allies. Because even the cupbearer, if he was slipped enough money, could poison the king. So he was a trusted man, a man of high standing and character, a bodyguard. But for all the comforts of the world, his, his heart was elsewhere. You can see that from verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with, a certain, with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Here comes a man who he longs to interview. Nehemiah takes the initiative. He heard someone has come into the citadel of Susa, and I want to ask them a question. I want to see how they are doing and how my, how my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are doing, because I can't get them myself. How are the walls doing? How is God's city doing? And verse 4, when he hears, he weeps. 
there's a fancy word called metonymy. Metonymy is when you substitute the name of something for a quality of the object. So, for example, living in Epsom, the turf. The turf would be a name for horse racing. The Reds would traditionally be Man United. The suit, that's the name for the boss. And in the whole of the Bible, a metonymy for God's presence and dwelling, even, you could say, the localised nature of his existence is Jerusalem. That's why Nehemiah is sat with tears coming down his face. It's not just that God's people are at stake. It's God's glory that is at stake. His walls are in ruins. He's working hand in glove with Ezra, who was responsible for rebuilding the temple. And how his Nehemiah, when God's enemies are having a laugh at his presence and localized dwelling place, Jerusalem. God's name and his fame has been ripped to shreds. And Nehemiah is weeping because of it. He is a man of passion. Everything that follows in this book is because he is concerned supremely with the sovereignty and supremacy and fame of King Jesus and his God. He'll do everything and anything to restore God's glory in Jerusalem. And he does, as we'll see. He's not trying to make a name for himself as he is in charge of rebuilding the walls. He's not concerned with national security. He's not concerned because he wants his latest DIY project and he's a bit bored of wine bibbing. His chief concern is that God's glory be restored. That his fame and renown is given to him in its full proportion and quantity. This is what always motivates God's people. Think about William Carey. What kept William Carey going for 18 years in India with not one single person becoming a Christian? How did he keep going? What was the fuel in his heart? He was convicted that he was there for God's glory's sake to a people that didn't know who Jesus was, who didn't know that there was a creator of all things. And so he persevered. What kept a four foot six Gladys Elwood going as she journeyed from London all the way to China because God had put it on her heart to do. It was for the sake of God's glory that she wanted to go and tell the people who didn't know who Jesus was or why he came. God put it on my heart to do. Why would 35-ish people leave the comfort of the King Centre and of a church and relationships that have been forged for many years, why would a group of people like that journey a whopping two miles to Epsom and to Yule? I trust it's because here in Epsom there are so many homes where God's glory is not known, where his fame is not known, where his name may be used but incorrectly and for blasphemy. God's people are always motivated ultimately by a consuming passion for his glory and for his renown, for his fame. It has to be the fuel that drives us. And notice from verses 1 and 2, there is nothing of the lone ranger Christian in these verses. Verse 2, I heard that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah is concerned for God's people. 
It says, verse 2, he's concerned for the brothers. He's concerned for God's fame and renown in Jerusalem. There's a lot of, in modern Western Christianity that says being a Christian is a personal thing. Salvation is an intimate thing. It's about personal salvation and personal reward and personal goals. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible says the minute you become a Christian, you're part of a family. That family, family is to be identified with in a local church. It's to be identified with nationally and internationally. You're part of a huge family that's around the world. It's not about you being in your small corner and, and I in mine, as the old children's song goes. You're part of a family. And Nehemiah is a deep concern, not for his own safety, not for his own renown. He's concerned for God's people. Do we share that? Is that in your heart? When you hear of a missionary returning, do you think, oh, I'm not going to go to that meeting, it'll be dead boring. Or is there something in your heart that says, I've not seen them for ages, I've got a deep concern for them, I want to go and see how they are because I've been praying for them. I pray for them once a week, I want to know. Is there something in your heart that flickers when we pray for another church? We need thousands of people to go out, men and women, boys and girls of the present that will be adults in the future to go out and plant churches. Is there something in your weekly experience that says, I'm going to pray for that church in Manchester, Potsdam, uh, to the east of Paris? Because if you're a Christian, there's nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. It's identifying with God's people locally, nationally, internationally. That was in Paul's heart when he was boasting about all his achievements in 2 Corinthians 11. He was boasting about how many times he'd been whipped and shipwrecked, how many times he'd been flogged. And yet his chief concern was, and there's the care of the churches. It's God's people that are on his heart. That's what kept him going. Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem, did Jesus care for the church? He cared unto death and he wept over Jerusalem. It's his people. Care for the churches. Is that in your weekly, daily experience? How's so-and-so doing? I'm going to send them a text. I've not seen them at church for a while. I wonder how so-and-so is. I'm going to arrange a Skype call with them. I wonder how. It's care for the church. It's part of a sign that you're a Christian. A deep compassion and passion for God's glory. Nationally, locally, globally. Verse 2. How are God's people doing? How's God's city doing? How's the kingdom doing? You could read all of that, I think, justifiably into verse 2. One of the signs that you're God's people is that you've got concern and a passion for his renown around the world. But there's nothing he could do. Here's Nehemiah with this passion and burning in his heart. But he's 800 miles away. He's in Susa, not Jerusalem. There's nothing he could do. But then he said, there is something I can do. Verses 5 to 6. I can pray. And that will make all the difference in the world. Chapter 2, verse 4, is renowned for proof texting of an arrow prayer. Here is uh, Nehemiah. He's up before the king. This is a golden opportunity. And so chapter 2, verse 4, he says, So I pray to the God of heaven. So that shows that you always arrow prayer. No, it doesn't. If you do the maths, which I did not, I stole this from a book. If you look at uh, the difference in a chronology from chapter 1, verse 1. It's the month of Chislev. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
It's now the month of Nisan. There's about four months between those two times. So that means that Nehemiah was a man who sent up arrow prayers at his job interview, kind of, in chapter 2, verse 4. But here is a man of passion, but also a man of prayer who prayed habitually for four months before he went to the king in chapter 2, verse 4. He was a man of prayer. What does he pray for? Verses 5 to 6, he prays, reminding himself of God's character. Here is a God of covenantal, unfailing love. Verses 5 to 6. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Here he is. He's 800 miles away. He can do nothing, but he reminds himself that God is so much bigger than his fears. He's so much bigger and larger than 800 miles. He uh, upholds the nations, upholds kings and brings them low. He changes times and seasons. It's the same God of Daniel. It's the God of Nehemiah and is our God too. And so here he is and he's praying to God who rules the universe with ease. And he prays to the God who keeps his covenant promises. Verses 6 to 7. He confesses the sins of his people who rely on the gospel. Verses 8 to 9 is their only hope that they throw themselves on God's mercy again. God's people have been unfaithful, but God is always faithful in spite of us. And what does he ask for? Verses 8 to 9, not just for mercy. He's also asking for success. Success. Verses 10 and 11. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. I was thinking this week after a really encouraging prayer meeting on Tuesday, how God so rarely answers our prayers without involving us. It's easy to say, God, I pray that you will reach out with the gospel into Epsom and York. I pray that you will save my neighbour. God very rarely answers prayers like that unless you are willing to be involved. Because who will God send to your neighbour? You. Me. Who will God send to Epsom and York? Us. How will the gospel grow in this area? Not by putting on big events, not by moving schools, but as we individually, one by one, give a reason for the hope that we have. That's the only way that the church grows. And here's Nehemiah saying, there's a great need. God, I have a passion for your glory, but there are all these building blocks in the way. Please, as I go before the king, would you not just show me your mercy, would you give me success? He has all the resources we need. I am so poor. Please give me success. He confessed the sins of the people because the principle is always that rebuilding begins in brokenness, personally, corporately. Here is a people who are under the judgment of God, under the Babylonian and then the Persian kings, who have rebelled against God's character, who have uh, stood on his rules, who have maligned his name, 
And God is, and Nehemiah is saying, God, please forgive us. Please forgive us. Please help us. We need your mercy, but we also need success. Before the rebuilding begins, before growth happens, before prayers are ultimately uttered, there's always confession. There's always confession in light of God's purposes and promises. Now, friends, it strikes me that before the building work begins, in chapter 2 and beyond, the hard work begins here. The hard work is not the building. The hard work, from my experience, and I believe from the Bible, is to pray. That is the hardest of all works. There are very few books written in the modern world on intercessory prayer. But it is the most vital of all things. You may be... uh, I say this carefully and respectfully because I always get in trouble. You may be increasing in years. That's older than 41. If that is you and you think, I can't do uh, youth work anymore. I can't do beach missions anymore. You can pray. You can intercede. You can hold up people's hands. You can pray for Nick Hurdle every day this week. You can pray for others on beach missions. You can pray for Acts 29 planters. You can pray for local churches that God would do his work. That's the hardest uh, work that there is. Intercessory prayer. It's hard to pray, but it's so necessary. Younger person, 41 or less. Do you have a vibrant prayer life? If you're like me, you probably don't. It's hard work. But do you have a heart to cultivate a prayer life? You've got good habits in place. You've got good resources in place. You might pray with somebody else, but you're seeking to intercede Locally, nationally, globally, for God's people. Rebuilding always begins in brokenness. And brokenness can only become growth when it's saturated in prayer. Here is a man of passion and prayer. Finally, here's a man of great godly courage. He doesn't want to start a thing without praying. And historians say in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he had every reason to be afraid. To be unhappy. Verse 2. Why is your face sad? Seeing that you are not sick. It's a lovely honest sentence. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. It's as if you had a daughter. Imagine this. And there is something wrong. At the school gate. Like there was a few weeks ago. And I went. And I could just tell. That tears were on the way. You can just tell. And the king could tell. Of his trusted friend. And lieutenant. His bodyguard. Nehemiah. That something was up. It was written literally. All over his face. Verse 2 tells us that. But historians tell us that it was treason to look unhappy in the presence of the king. So with this sadness of face on the outside, his neck could literally be on the block. But there was something in his heart, a sadness of his personal experience on the inside that was affecting on the outside. He was expected to be glowing with happiness Beaming from ear to ear. But he was subject to a treasonable offence by looking unhappy. I'm very much afraid, verse 2. And so what does he do as the king asks what's up? Verse 4, he prays to the God of heaven. The God of heaven who he's reminded himself in this prayer in chapter 1 is, is greater than the distance, who's greater than the king in front of him, who's greater than all the challenges he would face. Verse 4, he prays to the God of heaven. And then he goes big. He asks for letters of passage. He asks for resources from the forest commission. He 
He asked for a place to stay. He's asking a lot. But this is one chance, so he goes big. And then it says, because the gracious hand of God was upon me, he answered my request. He's a man of passion, of prayer, and of great courage. He entrusts himself to God and then throws himself on the mercy of the earthly king. Back in 1940, England was facing an insurmountable problem. And in the goodness of God, God raised up a leader that changed everything. He was particularly good at public speaking, although he had a stammer. And one day he stood up in the House of Commons and said these words. My voice is not as good as his, not by half. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. What is our aim, said Churchill? I can answer with one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. That speech from this great God-sent leader with a cigar out of his mouth, with his top hat occasionally worn and stammering of speech, that speech changed a nation. It gave a people who were so fearful hope. They were committed to defeat at the hands of Hitler's war machine, but they began to believe again. They began to have hope. And then it trickled down from the House of Commons and the corridors of power to the street. And then ordinary people, boys and girls, men and women, began to sing a song. A song of hope. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr Hitler? If you think we're on the run, we are the boys who will stop your little game. We are the boys who will make you think again. Because who do you think you're kidding, Mr Hitler, if you think old England's done? This was leadership. This was leadership from a man who knew that the fight would be hard. It would be costly. It would be bloody. But he had a deep, God-sent, perhaps, conviction to stand and to stand alone. To unite a nation behind a common cause. And if you are convicted about intercessory prayer as I am, here's one thing to pray for. There is one thing, I think, beyond all others, that the church around the world needs more than anything. Second to God, sending revival. Taking that as a given, there is one thing the church needs, and that is leadership. What a wonderful prayer to pray would be that the church, nationally, locally, internationally, God would raise up men and women who have a mind saturated by biblical truth who are convicted again that the gospel is the one hope for salvation, that Jesus is the only way and he will always be the only way to God, whose minds are saturated with biblical truth, whose hearts are captivated with the beauty of God, captivated with God's glory, a passionate, prayerful leadership, who have courage, God-sent courage, that they need the power of the Holy Spirit every single day as they pray, as they open up the Bible, as they preach and teach, and as they lead small churches, middle-sized, awkward-sized churches, and large churches alike. We need leaders who know God's truth and in the Spirit's power apply God's truth to the issues that Christians are facing in the everyday world. Would you pray for that? Pray for bold Truth-empowered and saturated, Holy Spirit 
at knowing leaders who can lead God's church, who stand for truth no matter what. And if you don't want to pray globally or nationally, please pray locally. Pray for me. Pray for Daniel. Pray for Andy. Pray for men and women that God would raise up a new generation of leaders in the church who stand for what is right and true, no matter what the cost. Because here's a man who did. He had a shared vision, Nehemiah, that we see in the opening chapters of the book and into the coming weeks. God's glory is at stake. The walls need to be rebuilt and I will risk everything. I'll lose the comfort of Susa. I'll put my neck on the block because I want God to get all the glory It wasn't a bulldog spirit that uh, got Nehemiah going. Like Churchill was known for his bulldog spirit. This was a prayer-saturated courage. Taking risks, trusting God's promises, taking him at his word. Back in uh, 1940, the German troops broke through the French resistance and they drove the troops back to Dunkirk. And all that needed to be done... To finish off the job would be the German Luftwaffe to bomb 300,000 or so troops that were gathered and huddled at the French port. For some reason, they didn't do it. And then about 300,000 British servicemen and women were evacuated and returned back to the safety of England. On June the 4th, 1940, Churchill again stands up in Parliament and says these words. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and in the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And God used this one cigar-smoking man with a stutter to cause a nation to rise up. And God used this one man, Nehemiah, who had this great burden on his heart, fueled by the passion that God's glory and fame and renown would be seen once again, to rebuild the city walls in 52 days. It's remarkable. But not as remarkable as centuries later another man who arrived at the same city not to inspect the walls but who walked through the streets of Jerusalem looking for true worshippers. Looking for true worshippers that would follow him and worship him in spirit and in truth. He wasn't going to take them to a restored Jerusalem but to a new, a better, a heavenly Jerusalem. He wasn't concerned with the building project. He wanted to build in them a whole new way of life where he would dwell in their hearts by faith. And what a contrast that is as we turn to the gospel and see not a man with a top hat and a cigar out of his mouth who said, never surrender. What a contrast to a man called Jesus who willingly surrendered, who laid down his life for not his friends, but for his enemies to make them his friends. What a contrast to that leader and king who willingly opened up his palms so that nails could be put through, who knew the same hands that threw stars into space, to cruel nails surrendered, 
and he surrendered his life on that cross. So God's just war against our sin could come to an end once and for all. He didn't cry, never surrender. He cried, into your hands, I give my spirit. Let's pray. Father, we long to know more of your glory in these days. It is a day of small things. And it's my prayer, and I trust the prayer of so many people around the world, that you would revive your church again. And so often that is done through raising up men and women. Young boys and girls have been given a vision by Sunday school leaders who in time train in languages and learn how to handle and study the Bible, who care for people practically, who teach people spiritually. People like Eric Liddell, people like Gladys Elwood. Father, please, would you not, for your glory's sake, raise up a new generation of spirit-empowered leaders who love the church and who love you more and who stand on what is true. We pray that for Daph, Mary and Jones as he starts at Chesington. We pray that for leaders like Brian Moody at the Grace Baptist Church. We pray that for Robin Colker at West Yule. Father, please, help us to be men of courage that preach your word. Help us to be men and women of courage who lovingly share your word with others. Father, have mercy on your church in this day and bring glory and fame and renown to your name in the days to come, we pray. Amen.